Uh, good morning. Welcome, uh, welcome church and uh, welcome neighbors. I am glad to be here with you this morning. And we are in a series that we're calling Glory Through Anguish. And um, the way that this is a little bit unusual, um, but I think it's going to work for us. The way that we're going to work through this is we're looking at the end chapters of the biography about Jesus that was written by Dr. Luke. And we're starting at the end and then working our way backwards scene by scene. So last week we started with the resurrection, which is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of Christianity. The reason why we're still singing songs about Jesus is because he was a man who came back from the dead just like he said he was going to do. And if somebody can, can claim they're going to come back from the dead and then do it, then maybe we ought to pay attention to the other things he said about himself and the things he said about us, and the things about how we ought to live. Maybe. Um, So we started with the resurrection. We talked about how uh, incredible that was. Um, And now we're going to take a step back and ask the question, how did we get here? Um, So if you'll you'll bear with me, I'd like to make a a sports analogy. And this is outside my area of expertise, but but I think you can maybe go with me. So the only sports ball that I know about is like the Super Bowl. And so I suspect that there are times where there's a really significant Super Bowl that happens. And like both teams are super invested. Both teams have worked really, really hard. There's this one play that like makes or breaks the game and everybody's excited. There's a whole lot of yelling. If you're in the Gagnon house, you should have ear protection. Um, And yeah, it's an experience if you haven't had it yet. Um, but, but like those moments, those moments of glory, those moments of triumph, actually are only moments of glory and moments of triumph because of what has led up to it. Usually it's the relationship between the opposing teams that can make a game really great. If there's an underdog and somebody who's clearly set out to win, we care more about what happens as opposed if they're just both like, oh, they're both the best team and yeah, they should be competing. But no, 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 if there's like an underdog story or something that we can root for, then it's not just the plays that have come up to that moment of that make or break play. And it's, then it becomes like what has happened in the season beforehand. What brought us to this moment of glory? How did we get here, and why does it matter? Um, So we started with the end. We started with the resurrection, and I think that that's appropriate because that really is going to frame a lot of how we look at the rest of what we're doing. But we're going to take a step back, and how did we get to resurrection? We got there by death. We got to glory through anguish. And as we do that, I think we're going to see some parallels with our lives. Um, Typically, as we're walking around day by day, we don't really feel particularly glorious. Uh, Maybe we're more walking through the anguish side. And if that's the case, then what is the hope that we're looking for? So um, would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Um, And I got it on this one, too. Let me get to it. There we go. Um, Let's pray together the disciples' prayers, the model of prayer that Jesus left for us. So... Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you open with me to Luke chapter 23, or navigate with me to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to begin in verse 26. Luke 23, beginning in verse 26, and if you're using the blue Bibles, it's on page 1103. Um, Those are tucked under your chair, under a chair in front of you, 1103. Um, And it's going to be helpful for you to follow along today, because we're going to cover kind of a lot of verses. Um, And there's some names in there, and I just want, I think it'll be easier for you to, to follow along if you are reading with us. So Luke 23, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26, and if you've got a a Bible with the same headings as mine, it says, the crucifixion. And uh, the scene opens on Jesus leaving a courtroom. And so it says, and as they led him, as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is dry, what will, or when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's pause there. So, our scene kind of opens on Jesus leaving the courtroom. Um, we'll talk about it more next week. Remember, we're going backwards. When he's leaving the courtroom, he's already been beaten and, and scourged. Um, so already physically weakened, and as he's leaving, being carried away by Roman, uh, Roman guards, um, they grab a guy out of the crowd who looks like he was just coming in from the country, so we don't know if he was out working in the field, um, or if he was just traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, coming in late, like we're not 100% sure where he's coming from, it just seems like a guy who was in the crowd, um, that they, they grabbed and said, hey, help this guy carry this, he can't carry it. And so it wasn't unusual for Romans, whose um, one of their great pastimes was, was executing people as miserably as they possibly could, um, for them to, to have the condemned person carry, at the very least, the bar of their cross, the cross bar that they were going to be hung to. So they'd carry that to the place where they're going to be crucified, from the courtyard out to um, outside the city. And so that's... That's what we see Jesus doing. He's carrying the thing. He's already weak, and he can't necessarily do it, so the Romans just grab a guy, and it's kind of their thing. Um, and just notice with me, it's Simon of Cyrene. Like, There's a couple of drops, there's a couple of hints in the text that this stuff actually happened, and it's stuff like this that really, really stands out to me. There's, this biography about Jesus was written by Dr. Luke. He was somebody who went back and tried to find first-hand accounts and talk to people who saw these things happen. And, the, and as Luke was going through, he says, I found Simon. And it was Simon who helped him carry the cross. So can you imagine how Simon's life goes after this? Like, 
whether or not he actually trusted in Jesus, he was in the middle of this scene uh, that seemed to turn the rest of the world upside down as far as him being in Jerusalem. So it's just crazy. And I think it's interesting that his name shows up and where he came from. Um, And as they're going out, there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting. So there's kind of a parade of people crying because of the way that this trial has turned out and because of the destination of Jesus as he's carrying uh, his cross. They're, they're upset. And Jesus turns to them and says, you guys, should, you guys shouldn't be crying for me. You should be crying for yourselves. And I'm trying to wrap my head around what is going on here. Like he, he's, he's, getting, he's carrying his cross. He's going to be nailed to it. He's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be executed. And there's people crying over this fact. And he says, look, you guys, you guys are crying for the wrong thing. Like, don't, don't be upset about me. You guys should be concerned for yourselves. And he brings out, he quotes some, some prophecies, some Old Testament scripture, some Hebrew scripture. Um, this is, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Blessed are the women who never had kids. Because this trial is so difficult that you're getting ready to go through. The judgment that you're falling under is so bad, like you've subjected children to this. And we hear this um, in our modern day sometimes. There will be couples that will say, well, we can't have kids because the world's too dark. We don't want to have kids because it's just, there's too much going on in the world and we don't, like, we don't want them to have to deal with it. So we'll just... And like that's the same idea that's conveyed in the prophecy that there's a judgment coming on this city, Jerusalem, for what they do. They'll ask the mountains to fall on us and they'll ask the hills to cover us. Like the earth swallow us up because this, this trial is too difficult for us to bear. And he says in verse 31, I think this is the, the key to kind of getting at what Jesus is, is driving at. For if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? So who's ever made a campfire? You ever made a campfire? Okay. So uh, when you go to make a campfire, do you just go around and go to a tree that's standing and cut off a branch and then put a match underneath it and wait for the branch to catch? No. Why not? It's not dead. It's got water in it. There's still life in it, and you can't really burn water. Like, water extinguishes fire. It doesn't work. Usually, when you make a fire, you find these little teeny sticks that are all dead and dried up, and you pile them together, and you let them get burning, and then those little sticks burn bigger sticks that are also dry, and then if you've got a whole bed full of embers, of hot, hot embers that are all dried up and are burning, then you might be able to cut a branch off of a living tree and stick it in there, and it'll smoke. In order to burn green wood, in order to burn living wood, you need a hot, 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 hot fire. And Jesus is saying, look, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He's saying, I am green wood. I'm innocent of any of the crimes that they have accused me of. But they are willing to go to great lengths to light me on fire. They have, they have made this huge hot bed of burning hot, hot embers in order to make sure that I am consumed. What happens when God turns and sees your guilt? If they've constructed this hot bed of coals and you put green wood in, green wood in it and it, it like, it's burning, then what happens when you put dry wood in? <sighs> the judgment's coming. 
And there's, a, there's this thing about God and there's this thing about reading scripture where we read like warnings about judgment and we think, gosh, that just doesn't feel nice. Why would God say something so mean? Um, but somebody pointed out to me at one point that a proclamation of coming judgment is an expression of grace. If I see that something bad is going to happen to you, and I don't tell you, I have not loved you. If I see that something bad is going to happen to you, and I tell you, I see something bad's going to happen to you, I'm not the bad guy. I am loving you. And you then have the choice to either accept my warning and say, oh, well, maybe I should make a different decision, or not. So a proclamation of judgment, a, pro- a prophecy or telling the truth about there is a judgment coming isn't a mean thing. It's, it's an act of grace. It's, it's an act of mercy and kindness. So Jesus, as he's bearing his cross and like needing help to carry his cross, is saying, there's something bad coming for y'all. His heart breaks for what is coming to the city of Jerusalem as a result of the sin that they're committing by executing an innocent person, much less the innocent son of God. His concern is for them. And so he's extending them grace because he's saying there's a time coming where judgment will fall upon you and you will, it will be bad, 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 bad. But until you get that time, you have an opportunity to make some different choices. He's not on the cross yet. He's not dead yet. The judgment hasn't been carried out yet. His execution hasn't been carried out yet. There's a small window of grace here that Jesus opens for them. And so the question just comes to mind, are we so offended when somebody warns us about bad things happening that we choose to disregard the wisdom If someone says, sees the things that are going on in your life or somebody sees that there are some choices that you're making and they say, I don't think that's going to turn out well for you. Are we so offended at warnings that we disregard the wisdom that's in them? Like, wow, how dare you say that to me? How dare you say that one of my decisions could result in, in bad consequences for me? Well, I do that all the time. <laughs> I make bad choices every week. And so why am I offended when somebody else says, hey, Mike, your bad choices are going to have bad consequences? Like, well, how, who do you think you are to tell me that I could make a mistake? Or I could be doing something incorrect? How dare you question my logical reasoning of the thing that I think is going to make me feel good about myself? I don't know. I, I think we're, we're quick. We are not uh, slow to anger, as James admonishes us to be. We are quick to anger and slow to hear. And so I just wonder if we are so offended at warnings that we disregard the wisdom in them. If God tells you, you are dead apart from me, and your sin separates you from me, are we so offended that we disregard the fact that he is making a way for us to be saved? Here's part of our big idea this morning. Jesus shows his grace to the guilty. 
Jesus shows his grace to the guilty. Let's pick up reading in in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I... uh, this, my experience is so far removed from this. I've never been on death row. I've never sat in the, in the electric chair. Um, but I suspect that if I were there, um, I don't think I'd be calm. I don't think I'd be concerned about the people who were getting ready to watch me die. And if I knew that I was innocent of the crime, I don't think I would be quiet about the fact. I'm tempted to holler and scream and yell to make the point, but I think you get it. You don't have to do that. Y'all, y'all get what I'm saying, right? Uh, Sarah, yeah, Sarah's advocating for the yelling. I, if I'm innocent of the crime, and you're getting ready to kill me for it, like I feel like I would have something to say about that. And when we look at Jesus, he's crucified. They, there they crucified him. They put nails in his hands. They nailed him up to a wooden cross. And he's going to, like, the process of crucifixion, it's not the, the blood loss usually that, that kills you. Like, you die of suffocation. So if you nail out like this, your hands like this, and your feet are kind of bent at the knees a little bit, um, what that does to your lungs and your shoulders and your lungs, I can't, I'm not a biologist, I'm sorry. But what I know is that it will um, cause you to suffocate and you have to push up on your feet in order to get a breath. So every time you want to take a breath, you have to stand up on your feet. And eventually you get so exhausted, you lose strength in your legs that you can't stand up anymore and then you suffocate. So that's the process of crucifixion. Did I mention that the Romans really liked killing people and making them suffer as they they died? Like this was was their favorite hobby. And, And the Romans did it and then the other Romans watched it. And it was entertainment because Netflix wasn't around, right? So that's, he's nailed to the cross. He's hanging there. He's struggling to breathe. He's been beaten, which we'll talk about more next week. Um, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
I'm not sure if you've run across it, but I hear it. Um, I hear echoes of it around sometimes in conversations with people. Um, that Jesus was just a, a political figure that got caught up in uh, some weird trial, and then he died, and people kind of turned him into God after the after the fact. Um, I don't see that in this text. Jesus isn't <laughs> Jesus isn't like washed over by his circumstances. He's not overwhelmed by what is like by the circumstances of the political situation that he's found himself in. Um, he's submitting himself to what is happening. You can't kill God. You can't kill God against his will. If God's going to die, he's got to choose to do it. And it seems like Jesus had a purpose. (laughs) Father, forgive them. They have no idea what it is they're doing. And there's this mockery that the the rulers who had made sure that all of this was happening, they're saying, well, he saved others. Can't he save himself? And and then the soldiers get in on it like, hey, I heard that you're the king of the Jews. There's like this Messiah who's coming to lead the revolt against Rome and become your own nation again. Like, if you're that guy, then save yourself. Like, there's this mockery. They even put up a sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. Neener, neener, neener. Look what we did to your king. And like, this public humiliation, crucified naked, on a hillside, publicly scorned, and he lets him do it. He saved others, can he save himself? And Jesus said, I won't save myself, but I'll save the world. I thought about asking my friend to, to join us this morning. Uh, he's a power lifter, um, and what that means is that he lifts nothing when he's at work, but when he goes home to the gym, he lifts really, really heavy stuff. Um, so not super helpful with a wheelbarrow, but if you give him like 400 pounds, he's all about squatting that stuff. I don't understand it. So I was going to have him come and show me like how to squat you know, 400 pounds, whatever it is. So he would get here, probably down there, and break the concrete as opposed to the wood platform. Um, and he'd you know, squat down, perfect form, because that's his thing. And then he'd pick up the 400 pounds, and he'd probably drop it, because it's work putting it back down. He doesn't do a lot of work anyway. If you were here, I'd talk about it in this way, too. So it's when you're landscapers, you just, there's lots of trash talking. Anyway, if I were to come to that same bar, right, that my friend had just lifted off the ground and then put down, um, I could have good form, great form, but I don't have the muscles to lift the thing. And so though I was giving it my all and my whole effort... It, it, it wouldn't come off the ground, right? Because I, I just can't do it. In Hebrews 4, which we read together this morning, it says that um, we don't have a priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every way tempted as we are. Jesus has been tempted to the full weight. He picked up the full 400 pounds. 
picked it up. And we come to the bar of temptation, we come to the bar of pride or arrogance or, or, or self-serving justice, and we like are straining against it, and we can't budge it. But Jesus bared the whole weight. Who bore more weight, the one who got it up off the ground or the one who like just tried with all their might? And so Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are. And so when we come to temptation, when we come uh, face to face with the sin that, that entangles us, like we look to Jesus who has borne all of it, borne all of it, borne all of it, and say, I trust him. Jesus shows his grace to the guilty by willingly suffering their merciless execution. Jesus shows his grace to the guilty by willingly suffering their merciless execution. How do we know that it had any kind of eternal impact? Let's continue reading in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It was dark for three-ish hours. Until about 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. <clears throat> so there's darkness on the earth um, and Jesus dies. Uh, dies in such a way that it triggers something for the Roman centurion who does these executions all the time. Like he's, This is not his first rodeo. But he, when he sees Jesus die... He says that guy was who he says he was. He was innocent. He was pure. He was clean. He was blameless. He gets it. And I don't know if us reading through that passage, if it stood out to you, um, it occurred to me as we were watching some videos around Easter time um, that this was a, a, a detail that had my kids had never noticed before. So I, I want to show it to you because it is actually significant. He says in verse uh, 45, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Um, we could go into a really long explanation of the significance of the temple and the significance of the curtain, but I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. God had chosen in, in ages past to dwell in a special way among his people Israel. He said, I'm going to put my presence in a special way on top of this golden Bible cover that we call the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to put, I'm going to put my presence there. You're going to put that special Bible cover into a room, and you're going to put a curtain across that room. It's a really, really thick, heavy curtain. Really, really, really thick, heavy curtain. And the only time you can ever go in there, into my presence, is one time a year. Only one guy can do it. He's a priest. And there's the whole ceremony to get this guy ready to go into the presence of God. And if he goes into the presence in an unworthy manner, he's dead. There is no question. You don't follow my rules, I kill you. I kill you. <clears throat> Sorry. 
So the presence of God is, is back, back in a corner of the temple, right? And as Jesus dies, that curtain is torn. The curtain that separated man from God is ripped apart. And I think there's two ways that I, go, I have gone back and forth this week to understand what is happening. The way that I have understood it in the past is that the presence of God then leaves the temple and then becomes, begins to dwell in the church. Like, we are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells within those of us who trust Jesus for salvation. So I think of the presence of God as leaving the temple or I have thought about it, but the, the other thing that, I, that crossed my mind this week as I was thinking about it is that uh, I don't know if the t- presence left, but if the ripping of the temple was a signal that the presence of God had become accessible through Jesus. It was something that was far away. It was always in Jerusalem. You had to travel to go there, and then you had to pay, pay, uh, give sacrifices to somebody else to offer on your behalf. There was another person that went in for you. But when we come to God through Jesus, the presence of God is accessible to us through his broken body. And I can't bestow upon you the thousand years of cultural conditioning that tells you that the presence of God is far away from you. I just have to describe it for you. But for these people, I can't imagine the people who are like guarding the temple, like in the temple and doing stuff. And like they've been there their whole lives. That curtain had always been there and they're kind of doing their thing. And then the thing just rips apart to that place that you're not allowed to go into. Like, like ski-daddling out of there. And that to me is an indication that Jesus' death was impactful for something um, spiritual for us today. We have these categories of the physical and the spiritual. Church stuff happens on Sunday and my regular life is over here. Um, I think God sees it all as one whole thing. And so for this thing to be happening on the outskirts of town, the crucifixion of this innocent man, and for there to be a physical corresponding thing that happens in the heart of the city indicates to me that the spiritual truths that Jesus proclaimed by his his death matter for our lives today. Jesus shows his grace to the guilty by willingly suffering their merciless execution. When we consider Jesus' execution, what do we conclude about him? Uh, historically, you can't get around the fact that he existed. Like, there was a historical guy named Jesus, came out of the city, uh, known by the city of Nazareth. Like, historically, it's a fact. And when you consider his resurrection and the things that happened, what do you do with that? What do we conclude about Jesus when we consider his execution? And just to close, we'll see him be buried. 
in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So, Jesus having died, now is buried. Um, I think it's interesting because I think of the Sanhedrin, I think of the Jewish leaders as like one whole unit. But we see here that Joseph was a guy that disagreed with their decision and apparently had enough respect for Jesus that he wanted to show honor to his body. And so um, he wrapped him in a linen shroud and he put him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. We're not Jewish. We don't get the significance of this. But in the Jewish mindset, like um, for us, we think of like germs. <laughs> for them, their whole world was, was designated by clean and unclean. Even every meal was clean and unclean, um, kosher laws. There's a whole bunch of stuff about clean and unclean. So for him to be in a tomb that no body, no dead body had ever been in um, is actually really, really significant. It was a clean tomb, a, a clean sacrifice laid in a clean tomb. And you're like, well, doesn't everybody get their own grave? Um, no, the way, uh, the way the burial worked for them, actually, it was more of a process where they'd take the body, they would pour all the spices on it, not to preserve it, which is what we do, but they put the spices on it to make it decompose faster. And they'd leave it in the tomb for a year or so, and then they'd come back, and after all of the goo had fallen off, they'd kind of wash the bones, put the bones in a box in the tomb, and then the, the grave would be available for the next person who died to rot in there, too. Like, so graves were unclean places. That's why there's a, a rolling stone. That's why the grave needs to be accessible, because people do come back to graves regularly. It's kind of a thing for them and how they did stuff. So... But that's all the preparation, that's all the spices, like that's all that's going on. And now this, this innocent man, this clean and spotless lamb has been sacrificed on behalf of all the sin of the world, is now laid in a clean tomb. Um, it's, it's significant. And, and, and Joseph wants to honor Jesus' body, which to me, like, it seems like a small thing, um, we don't take burials super seriously. Cremation's a big part of our life, which I don't say that in judgment. I just say it's, it's a fact of how we think about things. Um, but Joseph wanted to show honor to Jesus with everything that he could. And this is a small thing that he had at his disposal, and he chose to do it. And so we're here this morning gathering together uh, ideally, in the best case scenario, to honor Jesus. Um, and the challenge, I think, is, is how we honor Jesus with our whole lives. How do we honor Jesus on a Tuesday? At work, at school, in the grocery store, at the thrift stores, in traffic. How will we honor Jesus this Tuesday? when Jesus shows his grace to the guilty by willingly suffering their merciless execution. 
those are all my notes. Um, but I'd just like to invite you, if you haven't trusted Jesus, to make things right between you and God, to begin to trust him. He's the only answer that I have for any of the stuff that's messed up in life. Would you pray with me? God, this is uh, sobering reading this morning. We took a shower this morning. We put on nice clothes. We did not want to think about ooey-gooey decomposing bodies. We didn't want to think about death. We are really, really good at convincing ourselves that it's not coming for us. And so, God, as we're face-to-face with it, would you extend your grace into our hearts? As we look at coming judgment, may we not be offended by the warning, but heed the wisdom that one day we will die and be face-to-face with you and have to give an answer for the way that we lived. So God, in these moments, would you tune our hearts to your grace? Would you help us to trust you for our salvation that you gave by willingly suffering a merciless execution? We are guilty. And we want to be saved by you. Thank you for your love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.